Good morning. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, find our Old Testament passage, Exodus chapter 12 through 15. Today is the sixth sermon in a series. We're going through the book of Exodus, and we've finally arrived at the moment that the entire book has been building toward, Israel's great escape from Egypt. And it plays out over the course of three primary scenes. First, you've got chapter 12, and in Exodus chapter 12, God um, slings the 10th plague at Egypt, the death of the firstborn. And second, you've got the scene trans, uh, going on over chapters 13 and 14, and this is Israel fleeing Egypt and ultimately getting trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, and God does this amazing thing. He parts the waters, Israel goes through, and um, then God destroys the Egyptian army. And then it all ends in chapter 15 with a party, a worship service, uh, a celebration. And Moses leads the people in singing this amazing song, and, and his sister Miriam is dancing wildly and wonderfully um, as, as she leads the people also. So Exodus chapters 12 through 15, this is one of the most gripping sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. But there's an irony. The irony is the action keeps getting interrupted. It would be like going to see Star Wars and right at the climactic scene in the movie theater, commercials come on. And then it stops. There's somebody like Star Wars. And then it stops and it gets back. And right about the time you're into it and you've gotten over your anger at a commercial suddenly showing up in a movie theater. I mean, you thought you paid $39 per ticket so that you didn't have to watch commercials. And then suddenly there's another commercial. And then right before Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your, it breaks into another commercial or something. Well, this keeps happening all through Exodus chapter 12 through 15. There's this strange set of interruptions. Three different feasts are introduced. You've got this action, and then in the interwoven all through it is God teaching Israel to have worship services. And he gives these very complex sets of rules for three different types of worship services that they're going to have. Now, the reason this happens is because that we know those of us who are Christians, that God not only delivers people, he not only delivers them from death, he delivers them to something. He delivers people to himself for the life of the world. And so many of us who are Christians, we know that it's actually not an interruption to move from an act of deliverance right into an act of worship. In fact, if you really want to understand the action playing out in Exodus chapter 12 through 15, it's the feast that give you the clearest insight. And so what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to walk through each of these feasts, and they're going to help us to understand not only what's happening in this exciting bit of action, but also why it's happening. And then I'm going to conclude by trying to convince anyone here who is not a Christian, to become a Christian. So just heads up and uh, letting you know it's coming, the sales pitch at the end. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 13 and notice 
Exodus 13. We're going to start kind of in the middle. Notice what it says in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first who open the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, this is the first of the feast I want to talk about that he's setting up. It's the consecration of the firstborn. So God says to Israel, look, anytime you have a firstborn, whether it's for an animal or a human, you've got to stop the action and you've got to have a worship service. Now, why does he do this? Why does God call on Israel? I mean, this is a strange like ritual to give out in the middle of a chase scene, right? Why does he do this? He explains in verse 14. And when, it, when, it, when in time it comes to your son and your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but of all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Now, let me stop for just a minute here. Uh, this is awful. There, there's just no way around it. All through the Bible, you keep coming across this business of death and blood and sacrifice. And I find it repulsive. Some of you might be okay with it, but sometimes it feels to me like when I read through the Bible, there's just blood everywhere. And it's, to say the least, off-putting. I often wonder, why would God's justice require something so macabre? Why, I think, this is so awful, and it's offensive, isn't it? I'm offended that God would require something so gruesome and horrific to satisfy his justice. And I think that's exactly what we're supposed to feel. I think this is supposed to be repulsive and gruesome and, and insulting and off-putting because that's how God wants us to feel. He wants us to take note of our radically different viewpoint than he has. We are not offended by sin. I mean, we're offended by some sin, the sin that offends us, that hurts us, that strikes us and wounds us. But think about all the sins you let yourself off the hook for. Think about all the sin that you feel is just kind of a weakness. We're not typically deeply offended by sin. We don't take it that serious. But this, this bloody, gruesome, macabre stuff that fills the Bible, that is how God sees sin. For God, sin is deadly serious. We don't think that the ways we've hurt others and the ways that we've rebelled against God are really all that bad. But God regards every act of rebellion 
as death. God is offended by it. And why is God so deeply offended by sin? Because God knows the cost of sin. He really does. From God's perspective, sin always leads to death. One way or another, either our death or he's going to have to step in and his own firstborn is going to have to die. In the 10 plagues, God gave Pharaoh 10 chances to repent and pledge allegiance to him. And throughout that time, Pharaoh and Egypt, they could have repented. They could have joined with the Israelites in worshiping the Lord. But Pharaoh's heart got harder and harder and harder, and he ignored all the warnings. And eventually the Lord came in the 10th and final plague, and God claimed all the firstborn of the land. Why? Because Pharaoh, this is what it is. I mean, look at Pharaoh digging his heels in like this despot, murdering, pillaging, infanticide, enslaving. We can step back and look at Pharaoh's sins and see how terrible they are and see that God's act of this 10th plague is an act of justice. But that story is there so that all of us know, all of us know that that's the cost of our sin the Israelites and the Egyptians, any Egyptian who wanted to could have been protected from the 10th plague. And how were they protected from the 10th plague? They had to take a spotless lamb, kill it, spread its door, its blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes, hide under that blood, beneath that blood of a spotless lamb. And then when the 10th plague occurred, they, they wouldn't experience it. Why? Because they were good? No. Because that's the price of sin, death. God is demonstrating his incredible commitment to love this world, and he wants all of the world to know what it takes to redeem a life. And so this business, the business of the consecration of the firstborn, was so that God's people would never forget how much they are worth. And so that they would be prepared to understand Jesus' death on the cross. You, every one of you, every one of us, we are so valuable to God that he would give his only son, Jesus, as a ransom for us. The Lord Jesus died to redeem you. His perfect life was snuffed out in exchange for your life, your resurrection. Don't forget your worth. You were bought with a price. Now, that's the first of the feast and how it opens up for us a window into what's really going on here. A second feast that comes up in this incredible chase scene story is the feast of the Passover. The Lord introduces it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. He says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So what's going on is that right before God um, strikes Egypt with the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, he turns to Israel and he says, okay, Israel, I'm about to do something that's so significant. Your calendar is going to have to shift. Your calendar will not be based on natural things, sun, moon, seasons. Your calendar is going to start in the spring. 
your calendar is going to start rooted in this event I'm about to do. So he's giving Israel this new calendar. Their redemption marks the zero point on their timeline as God's people. Just like engaged couples become a new family after their wedding, from the Exodus onward, the Israelites are going to be a new family with new customs, living a new life in communion with their Redeemer. And throughout the rest of Exodus chapter 12, God gives these really elaborate instructions on how to prepare the feast of the Passover and how they're going to eat it and what they're going to say in subsequent years when their children say to them, why are we doing this big fancy meal every year at this time? All of those details are intended to help them establish the Passover as a family tradition. And then when you get to the end of Exodus chapter 12, the Lord focuses on identifying who exactly is in the family and who's not in the family. So think about it, the logic of it. He gives a new family tradition, and then right at the end of that whole elaborate instruction set, he says, now here's who gets to do this. Here's who's in the family. And there's this strange section where God goes through all of these people who are not in the family, who are prohibited. You see, Passover was not for foreigners, not for foreigners of any size or shape, no longer how they had lived around the Israelites. It didn't matter how close they were to the Israelites. It didn't matter how much people liked them, if people moved in and started living with them. If they were not in the family, they could only watch the meal. But there was one exception. Exodus chapter 12, verse 48. Quote, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would like to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may, if you write in your Bible, underline these two words, come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. That word come near. It's one of the key words in the whole book of Exodus. If you study your Bible and you like to write in it, go through the whole book. And anytime you find come near or draw near, this is one of the theme words of the book. And it's the key word in this passage. And it's the same word that was used when Moses was trying to walk up to the burning bush. He was trying to come near the burning bush. And God said, wait a minute, take off your sandals. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 48 says that, Anyone can come near to God and commune with God in the Passover feast, but they must first take the plunge and become fully a part of God's people. No one who is technically outside the faith is allowed to participate. Why? Because only those who have identified themselves with the Lord and joined the family of God's people can experience the communion that happens in this meal. 1,500 years later, Jesus comes along. And just like this, the night before he was crucified, just like the night before Israel was redeemed, Jesus teaches them to have a meal. He does the exact same move. He sets up a meal before an event for them to celebrate after the event. And it's this Passover meal. And he's celebrating it with his disciples. And he said, look, you've always thought this was about the Red Sea, but this is really about the Red Sea pointing to me. This is really about the 10th plague pointing to me. This is about that whole escape scene pointing to me. And everyone is welcome to that meal that Jesus gives us, the Lord's Supper. Everyone is welcome. 
You don't have to be a certain ethnicity. You don't have to have a certain net worth, but you do have to go through the ritual. You've got to go through the water. You've got to be baptized. That's why the traditional architecture of a church is a baptismal at the back of the aisle. You have to come through the waters to get to the table. Just like Israel had to go through circumstances, they had to fully commit. That's why often in our service, you'll hear the priests leading communion say, this is for anybody who's been baptized. Why? Because God wants you to commune with him. But he doesn't want you to think you're communing with him when you're not. Now let's turn to the third feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Each year, for seven days after Passover, the Israelites had to keep their homes clean of yeast, and they had to eat flat bread as a way of remembering the sudden call of God to the Israelites in the middle of the night to hurry up, pack up, and leave. Remember, God sent the tenth and final plague on Egypt at midnight. And immediately, Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt said to Israel, get out, because if you don't get out, we're going to die. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Remember, there's no McDonald's along the way, right? If you're about to leave, you better take some food with you. Um, so they took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulder. I, and um, here, just imagine this, 600,000 men together with at least as many women and children had to drop everything and follow the Lord. No time to iron their shirts or fix their hair, which wasn't a problem for all of them. It was just time to go. Now in the Gospels, there are at least half a dozen scenes and parables where this same dynamic plays out. Keith read one of them to us this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, when Jesus rolls up, right, on Peter and Andrew and James and John on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he tells them, all right, time to quit, time to leave. You don't have time to, like, let the leaven work through the bread. You've just got to follow me now. And later on, when Jesus encounters Levi and the tax collector, again, he ha- Levi, who's the tax collector, he has to abandon his lucrative and shady profession in order to follow the Lord. And then there are all those other stories in the Gospels where people, various people say to Jesus in one form or another, I'll follow you, but I got to take care of some stuff first. I got to experience my youth first. I got to make this much money first. I got to do this thing that I really want to do first. I, I'm going to come to you. Let me, let me get through some of life that I've been really looking forward to first. And Jesus says to those people over and over, no, it's now or never. Come follow me. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about. It's a foretaste of Jesus's call, a reminder that the Lord bids us to leave everything and follow him. And many of you know this can be really unsettling when it happens to you. Because it sounds like you're being asked to be irresponsible, to throw away your life and do something foolish. But it's not. It never is. Look, if God is calling you to do something, to change something and follow him, it looks foolish to you. But that would be like an Israelite saying, okay, 
I'll follow you out of Egypt, out of slavery, but first, can I take care of something? Like, no. Who's being foolish, right? The foolishness is when you don't follow the Lord. Why? Why was it foolish to stay in Egypt? Because there was God. He was going to take care of everything. He really had something better to them. He really had an awesome thing for them. When Jesus interrupts our life and calls us to follow him, it's always good news. You don't have to be ready to follow Jesus. You will never be more ready to follow Jesus than you are right now. And everything in you saying right now, you're not ready, that's a lie. That's a deceit. That's like Israel saying, I like it here as a slave. I like it here with my children being murdered by the king of Egypt. You're a fool. And the reason you're a fool is because you can't see the whole story. And if you could just see the whole story, the Lord, he will take care of you. Through Jesus, God offers us redemption from death and destruction and communion with himself and a life lived for the sake of the world. So there they are, three feasts, all pointing to Jesus, all preparing the Israelites for the coming of the Messiah, all painting this picture of who God is and how he works to heal this world, all pointing to why you should be a Christian. Now, If you are standing outside the Christian faith and you have not really and honestly given your love and your loyalty to Jesus, if you doubt, if you're a skeptic, I'm going to take the next, the last few minutes of this to beg you to quit it, to persuade you to come on in. The water's fine. All right. I want to do that by showing you something really cool going on in the action of the story. Chapter 14. It's the second day after the Israelites have set out from Egypt. They're camped up next to the Red Sea. They look up. Pharaoh is barreling down toward them with the most sophisticated army in the world, the most technologically advanced weapons in the world at the time. And Israel is trapped, and they just come unglued, like a lot of you, several times this week, right, when something played out in your life that trapped you. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, which is King James speak for other words. Holy cow! And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, Notice what God does. Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved. He had been before in front of them and he went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So Pharaoh and his armies can't come near. After After God says, um, no foreigner can come near to me unless he's taken the plunge, the next time the word come near is in the story is when Israel looks up and Egypt is coming near and then God moves in between and they can't. They're stopped. 
It's like God said, if Pharaoh's going to get to you, he's going to have to pass through me first. And then, this is the cool part, on the morning of the third day, does it ring a bell? On the morning of the third day, God parted the Red Sea and more than a million people crossed through to the other side on dry land. And when the Egyptians chased after them, the Lord closed the sea back up on them and destroyed them. And so at dawn, instead of looking up and seeing Israel's um, Pharaoh's army slicing and dicing their way through the Israelites, what they see is the bodies of the Egyptians floating on the shores. And then we get to Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the Israelites, it says, feared the Lord, and they believed in him. How about you? Have you seen how mighty our God is to save? Have you ever looked up on the third day and seen him standing between you and all of the gods and the enemies set out to devour you? Here is God executing justice against all of those who pursued his family, seeking to re-enslave them. Here is our God executing justice against the nation that sought to drown Israel's children, and he's doing it by drowning them. The Egyptians are destroyed. The so-called gods of the Egyptians are smashed. They're punished. You see, there exists a higher and mightier power than the mightiest human civilization and its so-called gods. When it comes to power, our God is in a class all by himself. All the other gods, in comparison, are non-gods. There exists a higher power. And our God, the highest power of all, cares for humans. He fights for, the, in, for justice, he keeps his promises for the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the despised. Israel saw dead bodies, the corpses of the Egyptians washed up and littering the seashore. And for the first time, Israel feared someone other than Pharaoh. They feared God. That's the way our Bibles translate it, feared God. It's one of those words in the Bible that are hard to translate. And really, you can't translate it with just one word. Uh, The better translation would be something like all fear reverence with a bunch of hyphens, but that's kind of awkward. It's, It's the thing Moses experienced at the burning bush. The Israelites were not only awed by the Lord, and they were frightened of him, and they trusted in him. They put their faith in him. They believed in him because they had a sense of his overwhelming power his total authority, his deep mystery, his grandeur, because here is a God who keeps his word. Here is a God who makes good on his promises. 
Here is a God who delivers people from their oppressors against all expectation. Israel finally fears God because not only do they have a sense of his unimaginable majesty, but also because they have a stark sense of their own weakness and their own inadequacy in front of those things that enslave them. You see, this is a fear that's different than terror. It's a fear. Terror makes you want to flee. But look at Israel here. Look at Moses at the burning bush. This is a fear that doesn't want to flee. This is a fear in the face of total greatness, total power, which is also total goodness and justice, and it both attracts us and repels us. We both want to approach, but we feel like we should stand back. And so we oscillate in place, bound in relation to this God, who on the one hand defies our comprehension and makes us feel so small, but on the other hand, he holds us and enlarges us and makes us bigger and fills us and magnifies us. And so we're pulled and we're pushed. God is this paradoxical combination of fearsome holiness and forgiving peace. And he sent his own son to die for us. Have you seen God's salvation dawn on the third day? If though, you can sing the praises of God. If you are not a Christian, please turn to Jesus in faith. Come near to him, because when we're near him, he stands between us and our enemies. He protects us. And we can find peace and safety. Do you want to see your enemies defeated? Do you want to live in Egypt? Or do you want to escape? The Lord. He's the only way. If you're a Christian, then you've been redeemed from death to the Lord. He loves you and he wants you to come to him, to listen to him through his word, to feast with him at his table. He wants for your kids to grow up knowing him. He wants for you to be a unified family, one people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's why he calls us again and again to worship. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. Let's pray.